This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. So our world is fragile, Jan. And such is the case in Lucy Trelaw's Wolf Island, where both the physical and emotional landscapes are under stress. So, Lucy, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we have an island, Wolf Island, but its location and predicament are very telling. What's happening with this island? Uh, this island is um, it's it's one of the f- islands that's in the Chesapeake Bay, which is off the east coast of the United States, near Washington and Baltimore. And the book arose from me procrastinating one day and seeing this incredible photograph of an island with a house on it, and the house kind of takes up the entire area of the island. There's just room for a little bulldozer to pull up at the front door, um, and it's subsiding, this whole island. But this whole yes, this whole mm. island is subsiding. As expected, uh, the Beauforts, which is one of the people who own a home, as expected, was hardly more than its outside walls, like a well filled with shattered building material. The tombstone houses at the north end were mottled and had a scum of frothing water on their front paths, and the air around them was salt sour. It's sinking. That's right. Or rather, the water is rising. Rising. (laughs) Yeah. It's a bit of both. There's a lot of erosion. Significant, therefore, in terms of what is happening to it and location because it's serving as a metaphor. That's right. It's a metaphor for many things and particularly I was thinking of it as a metaphor for Australia and how Australia hangs off the edges of the United States but but also in the way that Australia is uh, hanging off the coattails of the world in some ways. But Um, we're faced with a predicament now where rising sea levels are going mm -hmm. to displace people globally. That's right, yes. Yeah. So it is emblematic in a way of the larger global problem that we all face um, and that we've, we're all going to have to deal with increasingly. Yeah, and with- sinking perhaps also in a morass of our own thoughts or attitudes or behaviour. Would I be going too far with that in terms of how we're addressing that concern? Yeah, I think it's very easy for people to kind of push push these ideas of, of the changing world that we live in off into some kind of safer distance. But this this is me saying it's coming closer and let's start kind of really engaging with what it might mean for us individually. Well, we're almost mm-hmm. drowning. Storm yeah, clouds sure. piled like forests of seaweed, so mm-hmm. we're almost underwater. Um, it also, the people on Wolf Island also speak a slightly different language. Uh, it's apparently the closest thing that you can get to Elizabethan English. You can actually hear these voices. That there's a lot of YouTube clips. They're incredible. They say that of New Zealand, the flutter vowel. Uh, oh no, no, it's way, it's way, very different. You almost need different. subtitles for some <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah. Now, Kitty Hawk is our narrator. She's living on this island. She's one of the last there. A very unique individual. Yes, I saw Kitty very early on when I when I started thinking about this book I could see her sort of standing in the third story window looking out at this disintegrating world and I imagined her there kind of ferocious but determined to kind of hold her ground and 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 not leave the island. She's she has an attachment to the island which is both a source of her income but as well displacing her because she makes a living mudlarking she does she's um she calls herself a, a maker she yeah. makes sculpture sculptures that she calls makings from from the things that wash up on the shore or that she scavenges from the disintegrating houses and this is profitable 
Yes, well, fortunately, she has a not very expensive lifestyle, not, not but expensive. I'm sure it wouldn't be. But, but her art, yeah. it's creative mm. and she's appreciated for that. Yeah, she's creating out of destruction. But she's yeah. also then isolated from her own family. Mm. Yes, she, she, when her family had to move to the mainland for the children's schooling, she couldn't adjust to that shift and moved back. She kind of drifted away from them in a way. So she's lost her family. And this is an undercurrent going through because her son, Tobermory, Darkness, and daughter, Claudia, Hawk. And so there's a, a nice little narrative about how these children are named and the traditions mm-hmm. there. But she's sort of distanced from her family. And there's something about uh, Tobermory or Toby uh, that hangs in the background to all of this as well. But then... Another family arrives, so to speak. Who have we got coming to the island? So uh, people wash up on the shore one day, and this is her granddaughter, Catalina, and her her granddaughter's boyfriend, and two runners. They're refugees escaping from the south, travelling north, but also in search of their own missing parents. Uh, yeah, so it's a kind of makeshift group of people that she ends up living with. But they almost become a family in many ways. They do, they do, and it, and it's family as redemption arc for Kitty. It's a way for her to kind of make amends for the way she abandoned would be too strong, but the way she allowed her family to drift away. Um, yeah, so to me there's this huge kind of arc about making things from loss that runs all through this book in, in a range of ways, including through her makings. She's looking to redeem. Redeem and repair. Yeah, that's right. But then Cat and Josh called themselves railroad drivers. We drive people places, runners. We have a section. We pick people up and drop them off. Now, an interesting use of the word railroads here. Yes, that's right. And it's an intentional use that is intended to to hark back to the days of the Underground Slave Railway where when people, sympathisers, would help transport um, slaves, runaway slaves, from the south to the north, to the safe northern states. Yeah. And, and the use of the word runners I find also interesting mm. because it's sort of a, a newer term in that regard, which sort of places us... Uh, in, how shall we put it, a dystopian future, but that's virtually immediate. Yes, and I was kind of keen to avoid the term dystopia because of this. For me, instead of it being one of those words that is kind of fearful, dangerous, threatening, it's a kind of safe word now. It makes us feel like that's all off in the future, whereas I'm saying it's here now. Mm. Like, here we are. We live in this dystopian world, if that's what we want to use. When we create a dystopian world, there's obvious, often a new language, uh, new sort of paths and, and attitudes and bureaucracies. But you've just given us a hint here with one or two words that come up through the course of the novel. Um and therefore, we're in it, – it's our current world where people are displaced. Yeah, and, I wanted to be familiar but disturbing alongside that familiarity. And for me, if there's too much emphasis on that world building, I just start nodding off. We don't all go around thinking about the structures that we live within. We just exist within them. So I wanted Kitty just to be within that world but not reflecting too much on the structures of it. And she virtually then starts looking after this family, Cat 
in fact, is pregnant. Yeah. Uh, there's friction then between Kat and Josh, and uh, Lewis and Alejandra have a secret that is not being revealed. So there's this sort of unknown all the way through in terms of... Which, again, speaks to family relationships in some ways. They're very inscrutable a lot of the time, aren't they? Mm. Um, You also have this image of a prisoner coming through. And part of what um, Kitty has been doing is visiting this prisoner. And there is a connection with uh, her son. But, again, that's a part of the story that the reader's going to have to find for themselves. But this notion of imprisonment, she visits this prisoner. Okay, the prisoner said. And then to Chaz and to me, I thank you for the opportunity. He stood immediately and without hesitation. He had to lean forward to shift his weight, his wrists being shackled to his metal belt. His ankles were shackled too, so he moved like his body was broken. The part I could not bear was when he said, OK, for a second time, sometimes I can't help thinking of this. Now, that image of the prisoner is virtually throughout the novel in many ways. The image of prison and confinement? What are you doing? Well, I... I I mean, it's interesting. I've had um, quite a few interviews since this book came out and you're the first person who's asked about The Prisoner and it's never been referred to in any of the reviews, so I'm really interested that it's come up finally. I think for me there is this kind of... um, What I'm looking at is what makes freedom and what makes confinement. And in a way, Kitty's world is very confined. For some people, she's a prisoner, I would think. They would think of her in that way. But there is a huge amount of freedom for her in that... What what are the similarities, what are the connections between her and the prisoner? And also then this notion of social confinement. Mm-hmm. There are restrictions on us in terms of how we're expected to behave mm-hmm. um, and expectations on us all. And really the shift is only marginal in terms of whether we go one way or the other. I, it, it is, a, and, and I think it is part of this kind of general um, liminality, I suppose, that I'm looking at. What What is the difference between freedom and, in, and incarceration? What is the difference between, you know, safety and danger? How close are we to the edge all of the time, all well, of us? Well, Kitty goes very close, well, perhaps crosses the edge, depending on how you interpret it, in terms of protecting her new family. Certainly in the legal sense, she crosses the line. So in many ways, there's an association there between her and the prisoner she has visited Mm. in jail. But also then, Kitty, in fact, does leave the island, something she's been attached to, something that has displaced her from her immediate family, um, to try and help Louis, Alejandra... Uh, and uh, Kat, but she finds a different attitude in the North, which is quite extraordinary. Well, it is It is one of the mysteries of life, isn't it, the ways that different people behave, and I think that that was one of the things that I found so troubling about the most recent federal election we had, that I just walked around the streets thinking, I don't know this country, I don't understand I don't understand what's going on. And so quite a bit of that, I think, even in that phase, was was kind of feeding into my thinking about all of this. Well, I I think this is where this metaphor works Mm. so well with this novel in terms of where do our social attitudes come from, which in many ways can be heartless and cruel or alternatively uh, can be generous and giving. How do we swing from one to the other? 
I, I don't have answers, but I do have questions. Exactly the, your question, which is how does that happen? And, and looking at US politics, and I have been just kind of sunk in it for the last few years, thinking about where it comes from. Um, I think it's pretty clear that an individual can have an enormous impact on the way people behave. And, and our, <laughs> our political leaders, yeah, and in absolutely. terms of the discourse they choose, mm. which then positions us to think or behave in a particular manner. Or to allow particular ways of thinking to be articulated instead of kind of hidden away as these maybe shameful personal secrets. It's allowable suddenly. Mm. Yeah. Kitty then has helped uh, her new family, so to speak, and returns home. And the end of the novel, in many ways, is uh, ten years later she meets up again with Alejandra and we start to see some of the challenges that Lewis and Alejandra had faced. And there was corruption and abuse within the asylum process, within the refugee process, um, and a debasement of you know the, the roles people had and, and such like. And so we, we learn a little more. The end of the novel, then, is rather enigmatic and simple, but we had only to get to the door to reach shelter on the other side. Mm. Have we found shelter in the end, or what does it rely on? Well, I, I suppose that's up to people, but it is intentionally enigmatic. I mean, I, I think one of the things I'm looking at is is home shelter. Um, well, maybe it's not shelter. Uh, is there is there is safety a kind of thing that we can aspire to? And, 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 and what achieve? gives us that sense yeah. of safety? Um, there are lots in the book we haven't discussed. There's the dog girl and all of these mm. other connections which we could have gone into, but we're going to have to finish the interview there. I'm afraid, Lucy. The novel Wolf Island. The author Lucy Trelaw, and it's a Pan Macmillan release. So, Lucy, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Elliot Perlman writes about social concerns and the importance of work as a personal indicator. And thankfully, he's back again. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you for having me. Oh, look, it's been eight years since the Street Sweeper. And for that, you did a lot of research into Auschwitz and you set it in New York. This new book is more local and draws on knowledge from your previous profession. So fill us in where and what. Well, uh, it's true. The See, what I wanted to do, uh, going right from the beginning, I think, I identified what is perhaps an epidemic, I think, of chronic stress in Australia. I just think you see it everywhere, not just in the capital cities, but you see it in the regional towns. People are more stressed than I can remember, and I'm getting on, and I would suggest that it's coming from the world of work and it's affecting people in a variety of ways. It's affecting them with their, in terms of their physical health. It's affecting them in terms of their mental health. It's affecting them in terms of their, their stress levels. And to put it uh, in a nutshell, you've got a kind of a, a bifurcated or striated workforce in Australia, in many countries actually, but being Australian, I concentrate on Australia, you've got people that are working uh, full-time jobs and they're now being asked to be contactable 24-7. They're being set impossible targets, ridiculous, arbitrarily 
chosen targets, which if they happen to be able to meet, uh, the targets just get increased again. The first line of this book is, I quote, I am absolutely terrified of losing a job I absolutely hate. So who said that? Well, that's Stephen Masarov, and he's one of the people in, in the full-time workforce. And he was a teacher. He married fellow teacher Eleanor. And then they found that they kept having waves of economic insecurity as bills came in, which they couldn't meet. And they decided that one of them should go back to uni and get a degree that they thought would lead to a job that paid better. So Eleanor stayed teaching, raising first their, their only one child, and then they have a second child. And then um, uh, Stephen Masarov goes back to uni, does law, and they start to, to drift apart because of the hours required to study. And then they quite naively, quite stupidly think that when he gets a job, uh, things will be better. Well, of course, things only get worse. And he's now a second-year lawyer, although probably much older than the average second-year lawyer, at one of these mega corporate law firms in Melbourne CBD. And by this stage, of course, Eleanor's asked him... To leave. <laughs> that's right. He's When he but, wakes up and has that feeling that I am absolutely terrified of losing a job I absolutely hate, he's <laughs> sleeping alone in a flat in Elwood. Now, he goes back each night to read his sons a bed-night story. And one of the stories he tells them gives the title to this book. Maybe the horse will talk. Maybe you should just... Very quickly. Sure. Well, so without uh, giving away too many spoilers, Masarov gets wind that um, there's going to be another round of downsizing and that he's incredibly likely to be one of the people downsized. And he dis- he realises that a chance is floating past him and if he doesn't grab it now, mm-hmm. it'll never come back again. And he doesn't know if it's a good idea to grab the chance. He just knows he better do it now or never. And he takes the chance, but it's incredibly risky. And then he goes home and tells his son a bedtime story, which is essentially the story of him. And this is that story in a nutshell. He says, once upon a time in the 13th century, in a land that is now called Turkey, there lived a court jester. And the court jester was told by the king to come and have an audience with the king in front of all of the nobility and, and the, uh, the concubines and the, uh, the social media influencers and the HR flunkies. And they all come and they watch him. And that's when the king tells him, uh, you know, I found you very amusing for a long time, but you don't amuse me anymore. I'm going to have to let you go. And Masarov explains to his son that when a court jester is let go, he's not free to get another job. It really means he's going to be killed. And that's because the court jester has been so close to the king for so long that he knows all his secrets. So the court jester has to think very quickly on his feet and he comes up with this suggestion to the king. He says, sire, if you will give me your very best horse for 12 months, at the end of that 12 months, I will have trained him to talk. And he comes home and tells his wife, who he says to his son, incidentally, has the same name as mummy, Eleanor. And, And Eleanor, the court jester's wife, says... You're an idiot. You can't possibly teach a horse to talk. Why would you make such a ridiculous promise that you know you can't keep to the most powerful man in the land? And uh, the court jester says, don't you see he was going to have me killed? I've just bought myself 12 months. In 12 months, a lot can happen. The king might die. I might die. 
or maybe the, the horse, horse will, will talk. talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that uh, Stephen sort of through happen chance meets the legal firm's biggest client. This is Malcolm Torrent and offers to fix a problem that hasn't been solved by the legal firm yet. What's the problem? The problem is what Malcolm Torrent, so Malcolm Torrent's the CEO of this mm. ultra mega construction, construction company worth mm. about $37 billion. They do work in Australia and internationally, and he's come to the senior partner because he thinks they've got a problem with sexual harassment in the firm. Mm. And uh, the the senior partner doesn't seem to care, or not enough, Mm. and... um, You know, he's got HR people to look after it, Uh, but the HR department, they've got a culture of don't ask, don't tell. And Malcolm himself thinks, well, boys will be boys. And when um, Stephen is sort of taken on to look into these cases, even his wife Eleanor says, these women shouldn't be bought off, conned or coerced into dropping their claims for the sake of your career advancement. That's just wrong. All of these dilemmas through this book are wonderful. And especially at this firm, there's a woman called Jessica who asks for Stephen's help. Now, why does this intelligent psychologist who was working as a ghostwriter for her boss, Frank Cardigan, why does she need his help? She needs his help because uh, in addition to all of the normal insecurities that anybody has, male or female, in the workforce, women have an additional truckload of problems that so often men don't quite get. And I mean, I'm not just talking about those obviously, frankly, evil men who perpetrate sexual harassment, but I'm talking about another class who might be called the enablers of it. These are men who don't do it and in fact might think they would never dream of doing it. But they do permit a certain kind of language and conversation, Mm. even privately amongst men, man to man. And the suggestion is that those off-colour comments are the first stop on a railway station where the end of the line is rape. And so if you stop those jokes, even though no women there, the man, a man says, that's not on. I don't, I don't think that's funny and I don't talk that way. Look, through this book we have a lot of that and especially with uh, Jessica talking about being a waitress you know, and, and how it was so difficult to curb the comments, curb the physicality and sort of so with a job, with a job in a, in a profession, she doesn't have to carry dishes and do it all. She's got two free hands. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, look, that's, this is fantastic, uh, the writing about the sexual harassment in here, but it's not all that serious. You know, this laugh out loud moments probably instigated by one of the uh, women who's had a sexual harassment claim, Carla. She's employed a lawyer. Who's the lawyer? The lawyer is a man called A.A. Betka. And A.A. Betka is... So if Masarov's your straight-down-the-line, play-by-the-rules lawyer, Mm. Betka is the opposite. And my sister read the manuscript and she said... And she's she's a criminal barrister, I should say. And she said... Oh, everyone needs their own Betka. <laughs> Betka's the guy that when you have a problem, you say, look, I, you know, I've got this problem. 
And uh, But the only way to fix it would be to do A, B and C, but I think that's illegal, I'm not sure. And he puts up his hand to his, you know, finger to his mouth and says, leave it with me. Oh, yes. I'll have so, it fixed by Wednesday. So what, what's Betka's relationship with the legal firm This and the legal firm that Stephen's working for now? Well, uh, Betka was a law student, a legendary law student. You know, he, he had the, the best results of anybody and he was the guy you'd sort of put your money on to become a judge, you know. Um, but things didn't go well for him in his place of employment and he got screwed by the same guy that's now intimidating uh, uh, Masarov and so many other people. I mean, this is a partner. His name is Hamilton. He's so scary that even the other partners hate him and are scared of him. In fact, one of them goes to a Catholic priest and asks the priest if Catholicism could condone prayer for the death of a man, if it could be assured that the death would bring relief and comfort to many, many other people. And when told that no Catholicism couldn't provide that, uh, condone that, uh, he thanks the priest for his time and says, well, I'll continue my spiritual search for a more accommodating religion. So at this, for every current employee, a freely savage Carter Blanche law firm, there are five disgruntled former staff members. So Bertke has set up a support group for them. But right now he's doing life coaching, bringing in his clients at a pub, and he's got this one client called Casimir. Casimir, yeah. Casimir, <laughs> who comes into the story. But this is... This is um, uh, Elliot Perlman re- reading a little bit about Betka's. Uh, so, so Betka, um, Betka tends to hold court at a couple of pubs around St Kilda, um, where he uh, meets people who are uh, what you might call low grade, uh, you know, low level uh, uh, wrestlers with the law, people who've um, you know seen both sides of, of prisons, and um, <laughs> and, 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 in, and in the Grosvenor Hotel he has one client. Um, called Casimir, and uh, he says, um, he's, he's telling Casimir that they finished their session, their life coaching session, and he's giving him some advice on the way home, <laughs> for what to do on the way home. He says, don't lose your temper between here and home, and if you do, don't express yourself with your fists or your feet. If you have to defend yourself, try sarcasm. It's scolding, but leaves no injury that can be picked up by an X-ray, CT scan, or any other imaging device. And it's not illegal. Not yet, yet anyway. <laughs> not yet. Look, um, you hinted at some of the f- humorous. Of course, there's a seriousness in it, but it's lifted by the humour. And um, look, things in the legal uh, profession, every hour is broken up by 10 billable units of six minutes. Then They don't have offices. They don't have workstations. They're bringing in hot desking to exploit the invigorating effect or, of change or the new ideas to foist upon all the already terrified. You know, there's there's just so so much humour in this along with a lot of truth. Oh, it's Thank you. I meant it to be applicable to people in all industries, yeah. not just law, not just in the private sector either, but in oh. government departments, in education. I've gone around Australia and people are telling me, oh, it's in health, it's in nursing. It's There are corporate psychopaths everywhere you go. And I love the whole idea about buying expensive artwork in yeah. the office. That was fantastic. But 
beautiful stuff, like Argent, uh, um, acting Sergeant Ron Quill with his uh, sad man. His eyes were two shallow reservoirs of disappointment. Now, this is this is fun. It's mindful. It's laugh out loud. Great with the seriousness of sexual harassment and corporate corruption. This is the story of love, family, friendship and doing over the bully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very important that the bully gets his or her, but in this case his comeuppance. Oh, Elliot Perlman with Maybe the Horse Will Tell. It's a Penguin Random House release. And I interviewed Lucy Trelaw about Wolf Island, which was a Pan Macmillan release. Well, David, next uh, week. Another week books? coming, more books and we better get out for our ruminations. Here we go. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.